All right, everyone, welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Um, I'm your co-host, Michael Lipolito, and I'm joined, as always, by my great-hearted co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. What's going on, Tyler? I feel like I need to give you some Prozac or something like that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> What's going on in New York? <laughs> it's weird, man. New York is opening back up. I don't know oh. if you saw it. Yeah, they, they've got a, uh, a full open plan on July 1st. So, oh, nice. There we yeah, go. I know. Yeah. Texas has been open for, I don't know, a couple months now. Oh, did it ever close? <laughs> no. All right, guys, we've actually got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, the four-week rates on U.S. bills having turned negative uh, for the first time since March of 2020. We're going to be talking about the Nexon purchase uh, of $100 million in Bitcoin. Um, Germany has been opening up its institutional uh, Spezial funds uh, to crypto. I don't know if I said that correctly. Um, and then we're just going to end with some general thoughts on um, the run that ETH is on right now, which has been pretty exciting to watch. Um, before we get into the actual content, Tyler, how's the week been, man? What have you been up to? Uh, it's been it's been good. It's been good. I can't complain. My kid started uh, daycare again, so he's nice. uh, out of the house twice twice a week. Wow. And, what are you doing uh, with all that free time that you have? Uh, well, I feel I like a luxury. Know. That's one year old, so it's, yeah, but the screaming and yelling has dissipated, so I can actually hear my own thoughts now. What a luxury, what a luxury. But yeah, how about you? What's going on up there? Eh, what's going on? I don't know. Nothing really. I uh, Like I said, I mean, it's starting to feel like it's opening back up, like Williamsburg is getting, it's getting busier, let's call it. Um, nice. But yeah, I'm excited to uh, start spending uh, $18 on a cocktail and sit out on a bench instead of sitting in my home. That's, <laughs> that's, nice. um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be a real change in my life. Um, are, you, are you going for the Steve Jobs look? Is that like a black turtleneck? All right. All right. That's, I got to get rid of this. I got to get rid of this. You know, I love this. Sh- I love this shirt. I can't wear it because every time I do, that is the response that I get. So <laughs> I love this. This was a gift. I will say it was a gift. You know, I didn't go out and say, hey, I think I would look good in it, but it's I've won it one too many times here. Um, I love it. And I'm out. Um, all right. All right. With that little uh, fashion criticism, let, let's actually get into the stories here. Let's, let's, enough, enough small talk. All right. So we're going to be talking about um, negative rates on um, U.S. bills. So rates fell to negative one basis point, the lowest they've been since March of 2020. Uh, it's obviously not super negative, but it is still worth saying that um, rates on U.S. debt are actually. Um, yielding uh, a negative return. Um, there's been a lot of demand uh, for short-term money, but uh, yields further out on the curve are actually rising in contrast to this. So if you look at the 10-year, that's actually risen to 1.65%. Uh, that's up about 10 basis points from, I guess, the local bottom, uh, you would call it, uh, which came in about a couple weeks ago. Um, so Tyler, what's you know what's kind of happening here? What's your take on all this? Um, I mean... I think what's really happening is the Fed kind of realized they were disintermediating their banking system by keeping, you know, <laughs> the yield curve so flat. And if you look at basically, you know, the, the steepness of the curve is, is going up and, you know, the front end is, is really cheap and the back end is getting steeper and it's helping a lot of financial companies. Like if you look at the KBE or, you know, Wells Fargo stock, like it's, it's been on fire lately. So um, I think the Fed is trying to mess with the yield curve so that it helps some of the companies it was hurting for for a while. That's sort of what I think is going on. But also you have, you know, the back end of the curve has a lot of, you know, 
they're trying to move up the issuance from the Fed because of de the deficits blowing out to the front end of the curve because mm. um, there's more demand there now. But um, we'll see what, how it shakes out. There's some funny stuff going on. Like, I don't know if you caught the TLT. I think 25% of the TLT is held short now. So the bond vigilantes are coming out at the longer end of the curve as well. So there's lots of different dynamics going on. But I still don't think that changes the longer term, that there is so much U.S. Treasury supply coming down the pipe mm. that yields will rise on the longer end uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I got to admit, like, I'm probably going to betray my own ignorance here. I was surprised to see this, actually. I, I realized that that's super short-term debt, but I, I didn't realize that actually uh, U.S. issued paper had gone negative. Um, so I, I was kind of just surprised to see this in general to be honest. Kind of crazy. Yeah. There's so many conflicting things going on. Like in one, we're, we're in like a bull market in fear. So that keeps like cash balances really high and like savings rates. I don't know if you caught that number. It's just like yep. skyrocketed. And so people are, you know, holding, hodling money in at the front end and then going super risky on, on the back end. It's, it's kind of nuts. It's a weird dichotomy. It is a weird dichotomy. Yeah. So, I mean, you said that the Fed was kind of trying to shift, um, you know, the, uh, you know, into shorter term debt, basically. Is that basically like a, are there people where there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk earlier about like an operation twist uh, type thing. Is that what we're seeing right now? It's just not being called by that name. Um, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I just think that they were, they basically uh, were letting the long end of the curve go up too far too fast, which caused like kind of a bursting in the duration bubble. Mm. Um, and we saw like all the super high fast growth stocks kind of roll over. And I think if you if you move up the treasury issuance to the front end of the curve, where there is more demand, it's probably like you have to you keep the, the whole game going a little bit faster. But I guess if there's more demand there, there's less, I guess, friction than bursting the duration bubble on the back end. But um, we, sh we should talk to a bond guru on that uh, treasury guy. We should, we should talk to a bond guru. I mean, you know, we got, I mean, we've got Greg Foss uh, coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. I, I mean, you and I have talked about this. You turn me on to this episode. I think it's the best podcast episode of the year. The interview that he did with Preston Pish. Just phenomenal. So good. So good. Yeah. Um, so many nuggets in there. He, it's, you know, talking to a guy like him, I mean, his, his knowledge of just high finance and markets in general as, as an ex-high yield bond trader is pretty unrivaled. Um, and he kind of took a lot of that knowledge and synthesized it with what's going on in digital assets and Bitcoin, produced some really unique results. But, you know, one of the things that he mentioned that I really had to run to my dictionary for, was he was just talking about bond math and convexity. Um, and you just mentioned the TLT, you know, is down year to date, like, what is it, 12%, something like that? Uh, so yeah, can, you can you describe a little bit about the convexity that's kind of buried in bonds? Like describe what that concept is for people and then why are we looking at, like how how is that ETF uh, dropped as much as it has? Yeah, just the, the longer you go out on the curve, essentially the more sensitive the price of the underlying asset is mm -hmm. when, when rates actually move up. So if take housing, for instance, it's basically like a you know, bond proxy. And as mortgage rates move lower, on the longer end, because it's a 30 year mortgage, you can buy way more house with it. So you can, your mortgage shrinks, the payment shrinks as rates come down. Now, as rates move up just a tiny bit, it becomes even more sensitive and then your price drops 
incremental like exponentially lower so like i think even greg foss says this in the interview but like if rates go up 100 basis points that causes a 20 percent fall in the price of the bond similar to similar to housing you think about it the same way your your mortgage payment um grows exponentially as that 100 basis points goes up so it's just a sensitivity gauge on on the underlying price of the asset that seems really problematic honestly because you know there's been a lot of talk recently about how we might be at the end of the 40-year bull market for bonds but still if you look at um where institutional investors have the majority of their portfolio there's a lot of talk of the death of 60 40. there's still a lot of um big investors out there who hold bonds and actually i i mean i'd love to get your take on this because you shared this great chart with me uh looking at corporate pensions and their share of fixed income securities has actually continued to rise and is now at over 58%, the highest it's ever been, at least in the last 15 years. I mean, how do you reconcile that with rates as low as they have? It looks like there's no more capital appreciation left in bonds. Yeah, I, I don't know what the decision-making there is, to be honest, because yeah. I think a lot of the public pensions are moving out to like alternative assets and they're going to VC and private equity Whereas like corporate pensions going to more fixed income is like, what do you think there's going to be deflation? Like with the Fed printing 12, you know, Fed and fiscal printing $12.3 trillion. Like, mm. I don't know, the value proposition of putting more money in fixed income seems kind of dumb to me. But there, yeah. the one thing I'll, I, I'll say is like watching mega institutions uh, operate, nothing makes sense. They, they go to these consultants. The consultants say... And the consultants say I should allocate money here. And, and then you, you watch it happen and you're like, why do you listen to consultants? Like investing should not be about following the herd. Like, and it, so I think this is going to be a contraindicator where, you know, if you look at that chart, they were investing a way more in equity like in 2006 <laughs> right before the bubble burst. Mm. And it, this could be the ultimate irony where they're putting money in bonds just as bursting, you know, in in 2021. Because well, inflation's picking up. Like, there's no and ifs or buts about that. Like, if you tell me that inflation is not here, like, I don't know, you must be smoking something. <laughs> Give me some. I'll have what he's having. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, it's funny. You know what consultants are, right? You got this is going to be a consultant. They're, they're just they're just uh, an insurance policy. That's what consultants <laughs> are. Like, exactly. so I used to be I used to I used to be a consultant, and I get there's a big difference between the type of consulting that I was doing and what these investment consultants do. But I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same basic principle. It's like think about the incentives when you get brought in as a consultant, right? There's like a VP of sales or purchasing or supply chain or whatever, and this person understands what the problem is in their business. Mm -hmm. It's ludicrous to think that you know you're going to come. And by the way, when you hire a consultant. It's not the partner doing the work that's closing the deal. It's the 23-year-old overworked analyst who's got like one year of experience, you know, and is like yeah. furiously trying to figure shit out on Excel um, and is, you know, has no idea what your business is or what they do, anything like that. So really the, the value add of someone bringing in an outside consultant is they already have an idea. They want to get it validated in a big stamp of approval so they can point to whoever they need to, to secure internal buy-in and say, the consultant said that we should do this. Mm -hmm. And your job as a consultant is to take what you know the person who hired you wants the conclusion to be and then make the data fit. So 
That is your job as a consultant, uh, and you are great, great incentives. Great, yeah. excellent incentives. Yeah, it reminds me of like Moody's and S and P and Fitch and bond ratings. It's like, you know, you get paid by you know all these firms to rate their bonds. It's like, hey, make them make the numbers work. Make great. the numbers work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to take it down the street. I, you know, last thing on this, um, talking about public pension plans or public pensions moving to other asset classes. There's a lot of talk. Have you heard anything about them buying up? like residential real estate, essentially and literally just bidding on groups of homes. I don't, I think Blackstone does a big chunk of that. Um, who else? There's Amherst does a big chunk of that. And what's so fascinating to me is like the longer you just give, if, if the Fed's buying $40 billion mortgage backed securities a month, it just gives more fuel to that giant institution file that keeps the, the spigots open for them to just keep levering up. I mean, though, come on. I, like, there's a huge difference in between big institutional investors just taking speculative bets on stuff. Houses are things that people use, man. This isn't a piece of paper that you're speculating on whether it's going to go up or down. That's the price of a home. People need to live in something. We live in a physical world. This is more than just an asset. So, like, I get where they're coming from, but also... I don't know. That seems like that seems like dangerous ground for me. If mm -hmm. like me, you think that the number one issue that should be at the forefront of every policymaker's mind is income inequality. If pensions start bidding, like getting in a bidding war with like mom and pop people who are just trying to afford a home, that's a bad scenario. I think. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the guys that responded to my Twitter when I put out that that tweet that kind of went a little bit viral on uh, your tweets Powell. are ripping. Your tweets are ripping, man. My, my Twitter grows by like five new followers a week. You're, I think well, you're catching up to me already. Yeah, it's it's hard doing it. It's, it's The people that do it a lot, I'm like, what do you do all day? It's really hard to do. Like, do they pay someone to do it? Like, there's a return on it. But... Search me, man. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Besides the point, what's funny is this This one guy just hits me. It's, he had like, you know, 50 followers or something. He's like, you know, the irony about this is if public public pensions are supposed to help the little guy, but like they they really do the opposite in a lot of senses mm. is they just make things more expensive for the people they're trying to help and and I think that's my biggest qualm with like these giant institutions that keep growing and growing and growing it's like festering growth that has good intentions and then ends up like screwing over the people they're trying to help I it's like America in a nutshell uh, yeah it's it's a big problem we got to figure out a way to solve it I. I have no idea. I, I actually think one issue that doesn't get brought up enough is just antitrust. Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's get on to the next topic here. I want to talk about Nexon uh, and their purchase of 100 million of Bitcoin. Uh, I'll just kind of set the scene here. I know you've, you wrote a great newsletter on this, actually, so I want to give you the chance to kind of explain your take on it. But just to kind of set the scene. So Nexon, they were, they were a company that was originally founded in South Korea. They're now Tokyo-based, and they're a video game publisher. They specialize in online games for PC and mobile. It's actually the largest game company in South Korea, where I think they're still headquartered, um, and the third largest in Asia overall. They're only behind Tencent and NetEase. So basically, this is a really big company. They have a market cap of about $30 billion, um, and they're a top 30 holding in the Nikkei. Um, so it's a large, large company. The uh, $100 million represented about 2% of the company's overall cash reserves. Um, Tyler, you, you wrote a great piece on this. So what, why is this why is this something that we should be paying attention to? I just think it's a geographically diverse company. I think it's based in Japan, but it's a South Korean company. Yeah. They moved their headquarters there. And 
they are $30 billion. Like MicroStrategy is a $6 billion company. They're $30 billion company. They're leading like futuristic stuff. They're already in, you know, the meta, meta world. And this guy just said, you know, very matter of factly, you know, I can't hold bonds on my balance sheet anymore, which is basically what all these cash rich companies do is they go and buy bonds as like a, you know, savings account. And that's what their corporate treasurers do. And if he's, you can't buy Bitcoin all at once, right? Mm. You need to dip your toe in and then say, okay. Like if you bought $5 billion, which was their cash reserves all at once, that would raise a red flag for like governments to be like, holy shit, right? But he bought 2% of his reserves. And I think that's sort of what's happening globally is all these corporations are like, well, we're not getting any clarity they keep juicing this thing in every jurisdiction. Like, yeah. Look at the balance sheets. Every balance sheet of the major developed countries is going parabolic. And I think this is a super smart move by this guy. I, I, big props to him. And, you know, the way they write about it is so articulate. Like he yeah. calls bonds rewardless risk, just like Diego Perea, right? Yeah, just like and, Paul Singer. Yeah, and, and that ethos... It's like a 40-year bull market you're trying to break, and you can kind of see it coming apart, like slowly. And, and when you see it from the corporate level, it's actually pretty scary, right? Mm -hmm. Because this could cause like a massive, like if you're looking for that next ramp up in Bitcoin, it's a lot of money, you know? Yeah. This guy's sitting on $5 billion of cash. Do that globally. Do that geographically, you know? That's a lot, a lot of money that could come in. Yeah. What are your, what's your read on it? So when Saylor first did his purchase of Bitcoin, I was like, I don't understand this at all. That seems reckless to me. It seems really speculative. I think my take now watching companies do what they're doing, you know, Michael Mora went on Jason's show earlier this week and he, he announced that $8 billion of Bitcoin had been bought from corporations uh, through their desk alone in Q1. Eight billion. So if you just look at those numbers, right, there's a lot of announcements, right? There's a lot of Bitcoin uh, on corporate balance sheets that has not been discovered or announced yet necessarily. Yeah. Um, but I think what companies are basically saying is, you know, if you look at the mandate of the Fed, the mandate of the Fed right now, there's the dual mandate, right, of price stability and inflation. And then there's also, or, and then there's also jobs, some unemployment somewhere in there as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you actually get back to what the Federal Reserve and central banks are supposed to do in general, they're supposed to defend the currency. And I think what corporate treasurers are realizing is that central banks around the world are not doing what they were originally set up to do. They are not defending the currency. They are actually doing the exact opposite. They are debasing the currency. And mm -hmm. I think it took me a while to wrap my head around this, but I think corporate treasurers have basically said, if you guys aren't going to do your job, we're going to take this into our own hands and we're going to mm -hmm. do it for ourselves because at a certain point, this just doesn't make any sense for us anymore. Um, and I, I think overall, I don't know. I, I think it still is a little bit dangerous to be totally honest because, you know, when you think about how institutions are going to react to an asset class, that's this volatile, there's this narrative that institutions are going to be better than retail when it comes to hold like holding, through intense periods of volatility, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think a lot of these institutions, the amount of conviction in this asset has not been beaten into you yet. 
And if there were a 50% drawdown, I think the institutions would be at the first line selling, basically. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I don't think, I, I yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of companies uh, and large asset managers essentially top tick, uh, and then they're going to sell. Um, that's that's what I think is going to end up happening. So Yeah, I, I don't know. I take the opposite side of that trade, because if it's only okay. 2% of your assets, then like, Okay, you can say, okay, we tried that. You know, maybe they sell it, but I think the downside for them is is relatively negligible. But mm -hmm. as they ramp up, I think it'll cause them to ramp up. You know, because it's only a tiny allocation. Yeah, you might. Yeah, you might be right. Um... Here, here's a thought I just had while you were speaking, mm -hmm. which is, think about this: in a globalized world, like super high globalized world, that basically you need a middle class to work, right? Right. From all different countries. And I think we're at the end of like hollowing out the middle class. And now all these central banks need to print money to paper over all their debts. Right. And what the the irony is like maximum employment and, and all that is they're basically playing a game against each other where the more they print money, they're, they're like hollowing out the middle class even more. And just because the USD JPY doesn't kind of move in lockstep doesn't mean that there, that effect isn't felt by the middle class. It is in the housing costs. It's in the lumber. It's in the, the wheat and the corn. And, and so what you're really seeing is like the workers of these giant globalized corporations are like, you need to pay me more because in, in the, the companies are like, well, shit like we're not growing fast enough our earnings so we need to put and we can't invest in bonds at a rate that will grow at like the wage growth so they, yeah. they need an asset that has that payout and i think that's that's bitcoin i think that's really what's going on i think it i actually i think you're totally right the story of crypto and bitcoin in general is a story about growth that, that at the at the very if you trace everything back the problem is is that there's no growth and the reason why central banks essentially have to print what they what they, they have to do what they're doing is because the amount that they print is directly in, in relation to how short we are in terms of our obligations versus the expected rate of growth right mm -hmm. because as long as we're not growing enough to essentially pay for progress and and cover our own obligations especially with the debt load that we have the central banks have to essentially make up the difference so mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know how to fix that, really. I think that's why crypto is so interesting in general. I think it's something that every country is going to need to at least understand because crypto is inherently borderless. The structure of it, these decentralized networks, that's kind of a core key feature. And there are a lot of detractors out there who say, well, that's why it's never going to work. But I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's Uber. And I think it's going to work. And because there's going to be so much growth and so much... So many jobs are going to be created. So much wealth is going to be created. Governments need to figure out how to make that work. Um, and the ones Spe that speaking of which, mm. I think the the German stuff is really super fascinating. And yeah, know. you want to go yeah. into that? Yeah, let's let's get into that. So Germany has opened itself up uh, some institutional funds to crypto. So new legislation enables uh, about four thousand. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here. Spezial funds, I think. Are you Spezial? German? You, you got a perfect <laughs> accent. 
Spezial, as Italian. I'm Italian. Um, to invest in crypto assets. Uh, and this becomes law in Germany on July 1st. So the legislation will allow popular institutional investment funds, which are these Spezial funds. <laughs> God, that's no, like a joke. I'm, I'm just going to call them the funds, all right, for the purposes of this. Uh, it, then they're allowed to allocate up to 20% in crypto. This is actually pretty big in terms of scale here. There's about 1.8 trillion right now invested in these funds. So you have a really small allocation of, let's say, 2% of those funds. That could be up to $40 billion worth of capital entering crypto. Um, and if, if rates are negative in Europe, why is it only two? It could be 20. It could be the 20%, which is 400. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I The framework that I have now for Bitcoin is, you know, if Bitcoin is ever going to be a real monetary reserve asset, what's going to take it to where it needs to be is not retail, it is institutional. And I kind of, the way I kind of think about it now is the larger Bitcoin gets as a function of its price, almost like the more demand it's going to unlock because the larger of an asset class it is, the less risk there's perceived to be and the more institutions will be allowed to invest in it as per their mandate. So it's almost like as Bitcoin is like growing and growing and growing, it's not, it's actually unlocking new sources of demand as it grows, right? It's a really weird dynamic in that way. And, you know, and the supply characteristic of it as well, it is the only asset in the world, commodities included, gold included, steel included, whatever, come on, pick your commodity, that there is no supply adjustment relative to demand. Yeah. It's a, I know that's been articulated a lot, but like, you know, you, you, you see these little facts and no one's talking. No one was like, oh man, can't wait till these German funds come in and it's just like casual 1.8 trillion uh, that can now be invested in crypto. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. This too also opens up like the, you know how Ireland lowered their corporate tax to like 20% and that mm -hmm. caused a lot of like these companies to relocate to Ireland, their mm -hmm. home base, right? I think this is sort of a version of of that for yeah. crypto where it creates this like regulatory arbitrage thing where it's like, crap, you know, like Germany just opened this up for their special funds and like we have to do <laughs> that. That a little hint of Spanish on it. They're first, you know, the German culture is an interesting one because obviously they're afraid of debt, right? And, right? and I think they hate being tied to you know, the rest of Europe who kind of like is ramping up their, their debt spending. And this might be a, a way for them to hedge out the exposure in like a, you know, Hayek type Austrian economics asset huh. where it balances out their, their Keynesian, you know, Euro project, which, you know what, but then that causes all these knock on effects because they are one of the biggest economies in the world. They're big yeah. exporter, right? So it, this is such understated news and uh, I agree. especially, you know, with, with rates not moving there, like they're not stopping the, the QE over the ECB. So I don't know. I think it's a, it's a big one and could cause some major knock on effects. We'll see what happens up to July 1st. Cause I bet that becomes a story like, Hey, this big influx, 400 billion of potential capital can move in. We'll see. There's an analogy that gets tossed around in crypto, basically being musical chairs. And there is a really important game theory aspect of crypto adoption in governments because 
you know, on the one hand, it is very possible that the U.S. could come out tomorrow and say, hey, it's illegal to own Bitcoin, or they could attack kind of the on-ramps, right, via exchanges and wallets. But if you legislate too hard, then you essentially lose your seat at the table. And if it becomes dominant, then you've really done yourself a huge disservice. And I actually think that's the reason why there hasn't been harsher legislation. And if you want to kind of put your tinfoil hat on a little bit, um, you know, China kind of recently came out and changed its stance on Bitcoin and crypto. They actually were very harsh um, in terms of regulating the crypto industry over there. And they've now called Bitcoin an alternative investment, right? Which is a very different stance than they used to. If you look at just this within the context of the monetary system in general, China is trying to move off of a dollar standard. They hate that the US dollar is at the center of the monetary system. If you look at a country like Germany, who's their biggest trade partner? It's China. Sure. So if you want to put your tinfoil hat on, you could say maybe China is beginning to exert its influence as the dominant trade partner, virtually mm -hmm. like every country in the world at this point. And I think it, you know, I think it comes down to this question of who benefits the most from this. Is it China or is it the U.S.? Because that's a that's a really big question to ask. Yeah. I think that a lot of people don't in crypto, and you have to be because it's that an important is. question. That's the Peter Thiel question, and you it's know, Peter Thiel we'll, I guess we'll, we'll find out. But I don't know. It, it would be interesting if if the U.S. kind of chased this and was just like, you know what? We're opening it up, and you see that the the policymakers are making yeah. jumps into the the U.S. crypto company uh, management, which is I think it's a good sign, and I'm just hoping they move fast enough where you know we can take advantage of it. Totally. Um, one other one other thing that I I thought of, and this was I put it, this quote in my note yesterday, but. It's from a, a German sociologist named Ulrich Beck. He said, I forced to think to myself, what is the new concept? And it became clear to me that it was risk, not only in technology and ecology, but in life and employment too. And I think that really synopsizes what point in history we're at, which is the avoidance of risk has been the predominant like theme in, I don't know, the past 30 years. It's why the supply of new ideas is so small and growth is so small is because everyone thought they could just, you know, go with the crowd and, and just keep up with this demographic boom. And now that the demographic boom is rolling over to actually outgrow anything, you have to embrace risk. You have to embrace volatility. And that is, it's, it's really original. I think that's really what Bitcoin will be yeah. for a lot of these giant institutions and countries. Countries basically, they want it, they want to be short vol naturally. So the first movers like Germany doing this into a long vol decentralized world, they will get the benefit of it before everybody else. So we'll see how the dominoes fall from here. I agree. I think that's actually probably the most under-discussed but most important dynamic to understand is that the whole world is moving long ball, whether or not they want to. And it's mm -hmm. been central bank policy essentially for the last 20 or 30 years to try to repress volatility, but it's cropping up in other places outside of even financial markets. If you think about what was the driving force that got Trump elected, no comment on his politics here, but that got, it was a long vol uh, trade because mm -hmm. essentially if you a vote for Trump is 
I am not happy with the current system. And when he was getting elected, there were a lot of questions like, what's this guy actually going to be like? He's saying a lot of outlandish things. He's doing a lot of outlandish things when it comes to, you know, politics as usual in America. Let's give it a shot, right? It's going to be different. Let's take it. Let's take it that. Um, mm-hmm. See what it's like. So Trump is long vol. Crypto is long vol. Options, GameStop, all that stuff. It's, it's all the same side. It's all manifesting itself in different ways, but it's all people not happy with the status quo. And when you have a lot of people that don't see the path, then they go long volatility because what's going to, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I could actually achieve a positive outcome. Um, And that's kind of dangerous. Look at the short vol path for like millennials and and Gen Zers. They they're saddled in, you know, student loans. They can't keep up with the inflation. Their wages aren't going, you know, up commensurately to buy homes. They can't, procreate because you know they don't want to get into relationships they they work so hard and i think that's the short vol game that everyone was sold for for years and years yeah and the the people are kind of just saying you know what screw it you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try i'm gonna go to that new company and my incentives will be way better than if i get paid higher somewhere else like at least that thing's growing might be riskier, but it's actually growing than this one that's dying, mm-hmm. literally. And that, that's the big arb, short vol to long vol. Be long vol. Be long I think vol. we feel it. And it's, and it's more exciting, you know? It's, you might have, you got wins and losses instead of just like slow death by a thousand cuts. Totally. I, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I think even operating, and the reason... I think you actually might be right. Uh, I'll revise my statement maybe on what I was saying about corporate selling, but I'll just say like from personal experience, this is my second cycle in crypto. And as much as I believed in it, I don't think I had, it took me to be in multiple cycles to have the amount of conviction that I currently do. It's mm-hmm. hard because yeah, it's just an, it's just an emotionally difficult thing to, there, there's one thing to say you understand it and to conceptually understand it. Then there's another thing to have lived experience and really feel it. Um, yeah, it's a different, well, we could be having a different conversation in a month. If all of a sudden Jay Powell says, Hey, we're going to be tapering assets. And, and that's really what was going on behind the scenes when the bubble burst in like 2017, 2018, and they were tricking the balance sheet. They were tightening monetary policy, you know, and that caused like a lot of global deflationary pressures. Mm-hmm. And I think right now, the one thing that every, you know, the, we had the pandemic, they blew out all the balance sheets and now the deficits are way too big that they can't stop. That's mm-hmm. the big difference now. It's like, you need financing costs to remain very low for the federal government. And that that's the scary thing right now is you have inflation picking up the financing costs have to stay low. So that fiat money printing thing is just going to go in overdrive, I think. But you'll see. Yeah. It's just funny. At one point, even 10 years ago, if you had said that, you know, the 10 year would be below 2%, you would have said, no, that's no way. But now the two year is below it and it is flirting with 2% again, and it's like the end of the world. Imagine yeah. if it went to four. Yeah. That's going to be all levered up when rates fell. Every, every, everybody levers up, right? And 
assumes growth is just going to keep going. Yeah. And that's the game we're in. It's Ponzi finance, I think. Yeah. How much of this can you trace? This is my new little pet theory, but you know, if you look back, it might just be as simple as the demographics from the baby boomer generation and the GI bill, uh, which was the biggest single biggest transfer of wealth in U S history. And for those of you who are not nerds like me and didn't spend a whole night digging through this, there are three basic provisions for GIs, um, which was that you essentially got really cheap access uh, on or low rates on mortgages. Um, so really cheap access to residential housing, basically. Actually, a lot of GIs can, you could basically have put no down payment, get access to a mortgage. Um, you had really cheap access to credit if you wanted to start a business and you would heavily, heavily subsidized education. And it's funny because those are essentially the three axes of equality or inequality, right? That's mm -hmm. what makes the United States. Um, this was like the most mind blowing thing you shared with me last week. Where yeah. I was like, it really, where, where are those incentives for our generation? There, you don't have them. So you do not have them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically you had this whole generation uh, of people that had really cheap access to credit to start a small business. You had really cheap, like the ability to afford a home, which is a huge financial unlock for you as a person. Mm -hmm. Still, for most people, it's like 80% of your net worth is your, is your home. And then you had cheap access to education. So all of these things, right? And then you had a huge swell of demographics uh, at your back is a huge tailwind. And now look at our generation today, right? Housing is completely unaffordable and getting more unaffordable by the day. College is like, forget about it. Forget this idea of saving for school. It doesn't even make sense anymore. The, the, mm. I went to Emory University. Emory University now is $84,000 a year. <laughs> Dude, that's... What? Like, what? I mean, it's just stupid. I, I don't even understand how that works. I don't even like, understand how that works either. The president of that college, you're like, we're ripping. I mean, these kids are just not getting the return. Like, what? Right? Who Here's the internet. That? In, in a oh, laptop. and then graduate. And by the way, the average salary is like 50000 <laughs> So, So bad. You know? And, and then actually, something that doesn't get talked about either is that banks don't lend to small business anymore. That whole system well, of funding doesn't work anymore. And that's the other thing is like back then you didn't have like mega mega corporations that just ate everything. And like, yeah. even if we did get financing for a small business, like I, it's, there's such a bigger barrier to entry now because of those mega corporations. The only reason you guys could do this at Blockworks is like a media company is the easiest thing to, to start with because it's yeah. very low cost. It doesn't cost this much to do. There's no capital expense, really. Exactly. And so you just need to say some really original crap to actually grow, which fortunately I think we're doing. But yeah. um, but like, you know, back then, if you got a loan, you could start a business and you could be an entrepreneur way easier than you can today. So I just think it's, it's a policy thing. And once you have a, a change in the gerontocracy, they'll really start incentivizing things for the next generation. Totally. So there, there's this, what is this, there's the Warren Buffett saying about bubbles where it's like at the heart of every bubble was a great idea that people took to excess. And mm -hmm. I haven't done the work enough yet, but you know, if you look at, they had it figured out back then, what are the things that people need to move their lives ahead? It's access to credit, it's access to education, and it's a home. A home is part of the social contract of being an American, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the single biggest asset that the vast majority of people in this country have access to. And you as a young person, you do not have access anymore to any of those things readily. If you come from a background of privilege, then you do. But if you don't, it is harder and harder and harder to get access to those things. And yeah, it's a problem. Riskier yeah. and riskier bets, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's why you see these crazy narratives like they're trying to stew it on the monetary policies part. You have these crazy companies that come and they're like, you know, get the Elizabeth Holmes type people and the, you know, every SPAC is going five years out and giving you these outrageous, you know, expectations that never come to fruition. And and that's really what you get is is a bunch of narrative spinners instead of like people that want to make good long term businesses and you get the sociopaths that raise for free capital and try and create, create stuff. Yeah. Some do. And it's great. You know, yeah. But the majority, I don't think do. I think 90% fail. There's a reflexive um, property when it comes to different sources of funding. So if you think about the funding that was available to small business entrepreneurs back in the sixties and seventies, that was banks, right? And the banking model was different than now you have these huge giant consolidated behemoth you know, JP Morgan Chase type banks used to have a model of small, like local and regional banks, right? And they would lend to entrepreneurs. Um, Now that doesn't exist anymore. And if you're an entrepreneur looking for capital, you pretty much have to go to VCs and VCs to make their business model work. They need these big moonshots, right? Yeah. So the funding, it's everything is aligned to produce these like high flying, super risky tech companies. And I don't know. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the low mon- was it the low interest rates that made these tech companies do well, and then the funding sources, you know, kind of fit that mold? Was it the other way around, and actually, you know, small local regional banking like went away? Some of the only funding sources that were available were these like VC. I don't know. Like what happened? Who knows? I don't know. It's a lot of factors, but it's all ha- it all did happen, and yeah, that's where we're at. And you you know what's even more fascinating? And this is like banking three, maybe 4.0, but, and this is just a new thought. So it could be complete nonsense, but I saw Shopify today is now becoming a lender to specific, uh, retail businesses Mm. and e-commerce, which kind of upends like banks. Like if you're a specialty, Shopify gets data from all these people. And if they can basically monetize their lending, that just is just Boom, mind blowing. Then every single like person that has like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg could be a credit card company where he knows all your data, he knows everything you're doing and everything you're spending, and like he can basically say, here's a here's a loan because I know everything about you. Right? He can do it better than Wells Fargo can. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like Yeah. That's some crazy stuff right there. I mean yeah. Larry Page and Sergey Brin know our Google history, like they can basically be like, all right, this guy's going to go spend on a dumb car. That's like $80,000. I don't know. We're, we're getting out into la la land, but no, but it, this is already happening. I actually noticed this a little while ago because the payment infrastructure. So we interface with QuickBooks. Guess what? Intuit mm-hmm. QuickBooks. They're also starting to offer working capital loans. Um, what's the other one that would like uh, Stripe? There's Stripe capital now. Uh, and they also offer uh, working capital loans. Uh, PayPal also offers loans. And I've actually been surprised, like, just like you said, that social media companies haven't done it. It's like, how could you could underwrite 
that risk so much more. What if TikTok tried to do it? They've got these people that are earning millions of dollars as creators. Imagine the loans. Imagine how accurately you could underwrite that risk. They famously collect like 1,200 data points or something on each person. Yeah. Be nuts, man. You could do, yeah, fascinating. Um, yeah. Fascinating. That's a, that's a, we got to find someone who can speak to that a little bit. Uh, there's a, there's, you know who first flagged this? Um, was, uh, his name's Ali Hamed, uh, co-venture. Um, and they, they fund companies that have these kind of funky debt products. I'm calling them funky. It's probably gonna be standard in like 10 years in the bank. Bit. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's really smart on this. Yeah. I should talk to him. Yeah. I mean, if you go 30,000 foot view, what we're really talking about is just like money is now so it's so easy to come by that yeah. maybe maybe you should lever up you know a gazillion times and just buy like finite supply of things like yeah you know a tiktok star that's very original like we're we're really getting into a world of like when fiat is so pervasive and easy to come by and you know you can basically borrow money at nothing and lend you know and your balance sheet just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as a company and there's no tightening of policy so i have a um I, I, I've got a, I've got an anti-inflation argument for you here. And it actually comes from synthesizing two, you know, there's Lacey Hunt, uh, and then there's Mike Green and they say two very different things. So Mike Green's definition of money is that which extinguishes debt, right? You said there's a lot of money in the world. There's a lot of credit in the world, which is slightly different. Mm -hmm. And Lacey Hunt's whole thing is that you, the more debt that you have, the more of an overhang it is. And actually there's a certain number of amount of your income that essentially needs to go to paying down that debt. So debt is inherently deflationary. And I wonder if at this point, what the Federal Reserve and the government has essentially seen is we have so much debt in the world that if you view money, real money, as that which extinguishes or eliminates debt, then you could print so much more money because like all else being equal, you know, it's like 38 cents of every dollar earned right now is going to paying down debt in America. Mm -hmm. So essentially you could print 38% and they, as I'm saying this, didn't they print 40% of the money supply? <laughs> was, was that the number? So you mm -hmm. could essentially get away with that scot-free, right? Right there. You're just, you're just plugging the hole basically mm -hmm. from the debt that exists. So you kind of want more money creation actually. Um, Cause you're not starting from square one. You're starting from square like negative 20. Um, yeah, we're getting into dystopian land, but it's yeah, weird. It's, it's, weird. it's true. I mean, I guess I, I follow that logic is more debts deflationary and, and totally, totally get it. But, you know, will that money find its way into producing more commodities so that, you know, the, the middle class and the labor pool doesn't have their margins get squished because that's when you get the revolts, you get, you know, they can't pay when the middle class can't pay their debts. You get the subprime crises. You get the euro, you know, crises, and you get the Arab Spring, and that's yeah. like we're, we're edging towards that world as you see the commodity inflation go up. Yeah, um, and and people are paying attention now. I think. You know what? You know what, dude? You might never see CPI move one inch, and it might not even matter. <laughs> It yeah. doesn't matter because we just yeah. talked about like, what are the things that people really need to spend money on? 
you need education, access to credit. I'm blanking on the last one. I forget. Uh, home housing. And as long as those, uh, as long as the price of those things are becoming unaffordable or, or not within reach, maybe, maybe that's all it takes. Maybe it doesn't, maybe we're never even see CPI inflation, but it doesn't matter because the income inequality thing yeah, reaches a breaking point before we ever quote unquote recognize inflation. Yeah. You gave me a lot to think about this weekend. <laughs> we'll be chatting. I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Well, one more thing to end here. And I want to yeah. actually bring this up because I think it's kind of interesting. So a lot of focus on ETH, right? ETH outpacing uh, BTC, although that actually might have reversed today. We're recording on Friday. So if I'm looking at prices right now, uh, it, it actually reversed a little bit. Yeah, Bitcoin's up like 8% in the last 24 hours, um, mm -hmm. which is not bad. But, you know, ETH had been outperforming. And, you know, there was one day when it was like stock market was down, Bitcoin was down, ETH and alts were up. And one thing, you know, Bitcoin has always been kind of touted as this uncorrelated asset, which maybe it is. Um, maybe it's less core. But as Bitcoin uh, becomes more and more of an institutional uh, asset and has a more and more institutional holder base, then and, it, and also as leverage is applied to it, then I would imagine that correlation to other asset classes has to go up. But mm -hmm. some of these alts, like institutions aren't buying alts altcoins, I mean, um, mm -hmm. so they actually might be the last bastion of that real uncorrelated stuff. I don't know. Yeah. That's a theory. No, I'm with you. Janaid, um, over at, uh, Pareto, he has a, this thing called manifold mm. and I got a sample of it and it basically, he shows that like, yeah, alts are super non-correlated to any other asset. And, and this is what's a really fascinating thought is like, if you are already inherently wealthy as like a uh, digital currency developer, right? Yeah. And you're like, holy crap, here's this really cool project that I'm gonna work on that's like, you know, micro cap. Right. And you get a lot of that value by working on it. And you're like, well, I'm just gonna hold this because I'm already like super wealthy over here. Yeah. And your, your holder base is stronger at a lower, if you have really good developers, right? And so when you see the macro things like big, you know, drawdowns in like, you know, asset um, equities and, and bonds, these can actually perform really, really well because they're just like a very idiosyncratic holder base that's like non-correlated to anything else. Yeah. And I thought that was like super, super fascinating because it's everything that public long short managers and all these other people want but they're, they can't really do compliance wise. So, uh, you know, what's funny about this as well is, you know, an outsider's take on, I have, again, no background in finance, but so sometimes when I'm looking at how things work in financial markets, I'm like, why does it work like this? And one thing that from an outsider's perspective, it looks like there are all these correlations that it doesn't even really make sense that certain things behave in the way they do, but it's just, there are these beliefs that have been reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And at this point, when you see something, you're like, oh, well, the last time this happened, this other thing happened. And therefore, everyone just anticipates that it's going to happen again. And these relationships get formed, right? Kind of like inverse relationship between the price of bonds and, and stocks. Um, and there's not really a great reason for that to happen, but it just gets reinforced and reinforced in these. And it, it actually, belief impacts outcomes. And those haven't really been formed yet in crypto, which makes it so interesting. Those things yeah. are getting formed as we speak today. I mean, 
Well, that's the, I think that's what happens when you have these world controllers. It's like the Brave New World type stuff where yeah. in the public equity market, like there's no reason like when they're in the same indices mm. and capital just goes in and say you put, you know, a billion dollars into an ETF and like they all move up together and they all move down together when there's inflows and outflows and there's no like differentiation between the companies and that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. You know, you should have a little personality and maybe it's, you know, art mimics life, life mimics art because like the internet allowed the centralization of capital, the centralization of thought, like media, like you, you watch mainstream media all the time and it's just like, they, they're like world controllers. Like yeah. they don't let you think other stuff. And I think that growth went like this parabolic. And now we're seeing people going to like alternative things like altcoins and blockworks as a, a form of, of media. That's like, so you can't say what we say on those things. You can't manage money the same way you can in public equities as you can in digital assets. So like by nature, you know, I think that is the next big secular push. Right? Am I going down some crazy? No, matter? you're not. No, you're not. And you know, the money manager thing, I actually think I I think a lot of legacy finance is not gonna be able to make the transition into crypto. Um there's a great podcast. There's a great podcast called Up Only. Um mm -hmm. I just started listening to it. And one thing that I didn't fully appreciate until recently is a lot of these like accounts that you see on Twitter, these kind of shit posting, you know, weird name, talk about they are, there are real people behind those accounts moving real money, nine figure, you know, uh, like real money. Uh, and they're essentially prop trading. And when you look at who is successful in this market, I think you're literally watching the next generation of great macro funds getting built before our eyes. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard. So when you think of a guy like Paul Tudor Jones or someone like that, you think storied investor, right? You're like that guy, he is synonymous with, he's an institution unto himself, but it wasn't always like that. And when you actually trace back the history of hedge funds, some of those really early hedge funds, nobody knew what the fuck they did. And yeah, they were like exactly. nerdy guys, like working yeah. on these formulas and like low key, just printing money. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you take it all the way back to like commodities corporation, Bruce Kovner. Yeah. Read the, read market wizards. Everyone should read market wizards. Uh, yeah. but you gotta think what it was actually like back then. And I, I think we're watching those people get built before yeah. our eyes and look at Travis Kling. I, I read his, his tweets sometimes and I'm like, he just calls it like it is. And you would never be able, he was a ex Goldman guy and like, Everything he says, I, I kind of just agree with. Yeah, me too. But it's such an anti-consensus thing to say, and in that it's probably it's really hard for people to do that come from that world because you get like lambasted. It's like, oh, he's a crazy crypto guy, you know. But he's printing money right now, and no one and everyone over here is like, you know, making less every year, and he's just like probably just gathering assets, and his performance is skyrocketing, and like. But it's not like it had that tipping point, I think we're right on where it becomes, okay, this guy's, these guys are going to be like the new legends, like Sam Bankman Freed's, you know, creating like new models in, in a whole new world. 
I don't think people understand the scale that crypto hedge funds are growing at right now. Mm. Um, and when I mean growing, I mean, there were some funds that, you know, without naming any names or docs, but there were some funds that started out in 2018 with, you know, sometimes sub eight, like seven figures of AUM mm. that are now have now crossed the billion dollar mark. I mean, we are talking 100 X AUM growth over a span of two, two and a half years. It is, and they're charging like two and thirty or something like that. It's probably more. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Huge minimums now. I mean, it's. I mean, the money that is being made, and it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. I, I don't think people have fully grasped it, and I think a lot of people in crypto are happy to let them not grasp it, right? Because why would they want the competition, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's a harder barrier to entry. It's not like you can just be a, a hedge fund in the public markets now, and then all of a sudden. You, you you need custody. You need like there is. It's a whole new technology. I get nervous, you know, transferring money from here to there using wallets and stuff. And you know, I've been doing it for a couple of years. Yeah. But and speaking of which, uh, not to drag this on too long, but recently I just took out a loan against my you know assets at BlockFi. Oh, interesting. And like I I need to I can't stress this enough. If you haven't done this, just do a small amount just to borrow against. And it is so much better than working with a bank. I just refinanced my house a couple months ago. That was like full cavity search. I just took out in, in like under 10 minutes, you take out a loan against your your collateral. You post collateral. So it's basically like you're posting your house against collateral for mortgage. And you get money in your account within like 10 minutes. And like, you can't, th this is banking and you can't do this. Like Wells Fargo could not do this if they tried. Okay. You're so right. You know, one thing just hit me. This was a minor moment from a webinar that we did earlier this week, but we had these people on and they were talking about how now when you have to use a bank to send a wire, it's like annoying. It feels like you're mm -hmm. dialing into the internet using dial up. And I get it because once you actually get your hands up, so, okay. <laughs> once you actually get your hands on the stuff, it feels like you're taking huge steps backwards using the legacy stuff. Yeah. And you know, so Grant Williams came on this podcast like a month ago. It was awesome. He was super generous this time. Awesome guy. It is so funny to hear, you know, he had this line that really stuck with me, which was, he was like, the first time I bought gold, I'll never forget it. It was solid. I felt it in my hand. There was this visceral experience that like made a mark on him. And that's exactly how I feel about Bitcoin. When you first use this technology and you just put an address in, you send it and it works. It's incredible. It's like for it's, negligible fee for negligible fee. Yeah. And as someone who like, I'm, li I live in our, you know, we bank with one of those huge banks and so I, I just Franco, if you're listening, you do a great job, man. But like, you know, it's I the always calls, the payments are always getting held up. It's like I'm on the phone with these people all the time. Yeah. And, and to even just how clunky the interface feels as well. It's like you are designing this to make this more difficult for me. It is crazy. Yeah. I can't find it. It's yeah, it sucks. Um, here's a here's a tiny last thing is so I, I bought stacks, right? Mm. STX. And I, I know I, you know, we're not sponsored by any of these things. 
No. Look at all these no, books. I mean, stacks. But so you, put, I, I took like three days to get my money into like Coinbase, and then I I transferred from Coinbase. Once it was in Coinbase, you can only buy stacks and on like OKCoin in the U.S. Mm. And so, you know, you got my app open on OKCoin, you know, on my phone within like three minutes. Transferred once the money was in Coinbase. Transfer the money from Coinbase to OKCoin. It gets there. You can buy the stacks, and like just to get the money into the digital asset ecosystem was the hardest part. And then from there, it's just like bing, 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 bing. Yeah. And I mean, it's just my. It really is mind blowing. And to think that like you can do that anywhere in the world is just that's the instant value prop right there. It's like I could be in Tokyo. I could be in you know Indonesia. And do the same exact thing just with an internet connection. Yeah. It's crazy. If you've ever had to send, if anyone listening to this has ever had to send an international wire transfer, you will know the acute pain of what that process is actually like. And yeah. I would even say at the current state of infrastructure, crypto is a full order of magnitude better as a product sending money than the current system. Every That's all it. That's everything included. That's... You know, you can't do clawbacks, right? If you send it to the wrong, whatever, like all factors being included, the current mm -hmm. product set or suite of offerings essentially within crypto is is an order of magnitude better than the legacy banking system in my, yeah. having used it actually, just, yeah, in my opinion, but like having used both extensively, um, yeah, I would say so. So yeah, it's cool. Well. All right, man. Bitcoin. Yeah, me and the CEO of Bitcoin were tight. Uh, yeah. We go way back. Um, what a guy. Great guy. Or gal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are your plans this weekend? What are you getting up to? Uh, you know, we were going to go. They have all these outdoor breweries, breweries in Texas that are like huge monster areas because everything's bigger in Texas. But it's mm -hmm. looking like... There's a, a stream in my front yard. It's about to downpour. So hopefully it subsides and we can go. It but, just started like hurricane raining. Uh, yeah, yeah, in New York. Um, that's where yeah. I am right now. So When do you think movies are coming back? Movie theaters. Oh, man. I, you know, I hope they do. I, I, well, actually, you know what? It's even like there haven't been very many good movies in 2020 or 2020. Yeah, because all the, all the production stopped essentially. I miss yeah. movies. I love movies. I'm a big movie guy, big TV guy. I like the stories. They speak to I'm a story guy. Um, you are. You know, I love the pods. I love the movies. I love the TV. I need it. Have you seen City of Lies? It's a, the story of like Biggie getting no. killed and how like the LA cops. That's a watch. John, Johnny Depp, Forrest Whitaker. Mm. Is this it's, new Johnny Depp though, or old Johnny Depp? Yeah, I think it was. I think this was in the last year. Mm. It was new. Johnny Depp, man. I don't mean to. I don't want to kick a guy when he's down, but man, that guy's had a bit of a fall from grace. I will say that about uh, our boy Johnny. There is yeah. a there is a Rolling Stones article on him, like an expose. Did you read that? Came out like no. a year year and a half ago. No, I missed it. He'll be okay. He'll be okay. He's got like hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> but okay. all right, that's a good watch. I'm trying to think. I am. Um, I don't know if I want to admit this on air. I, I just, uh, I've never seen the OC and I like watched the full first season of the OC <laughs> <laughs> over the last month. And that is a meaty first season. Inner Valley girl. Yeah, seriously. 
like what am I doing? I but I just never seen it, and like one night I just turned it on, and does yeah. it make you want to move there though? Yeah, it does. I I knew a girl in college that was from 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 there, Newport or whatever. Um, but I was just like, damn, this does look good. Um, yeah, it's a meaty first season. It's twenty seven episodes, forty five minutes each. Oh wow, it's like a time investment, dude. What are you doing with your time? You're supposed to be the CEO, bro. Yeah, yeah. I just on weekends, you know, nights and weekends. Yeah, um, gotcha, yeah gotcha. literally cranked through. Right. Yeah, cranked through the whole first season of the OC, and I got to tell you, it's not, not. I, I got to leave it. I'm not. I'm not yeah. uh, going to continue. <laughs> I'm not going to. I barely remember it. Yeah, I know. It's long. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's very similar to. It reminds mm-hmm. of like a Gossip Girl kind of thing. It's just, yeah, it's mm-hmm. CW. Drama. You know, I liked One Tree Hill. Really? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I never, I never watched. I never watched. Yeah. You give it a One Tree. One Tree. All right, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll have to curate a more, more uh, specific list of teen dramas for everyone. Last time, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between uh, yeah. our audience and that, that kind of stuff. But all right, man. Um, yeah. Have a good weekend. I'll see you, you same time next week. Take, Take care, care, bro. See you. All right.